Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. In this episode of the Sustainability and You podcast, we interview Maya D'Souza. Maya is a director at the Business in the Community's Circular Economy Task Force, considering the connection between better management of resources, safeguarding natural environments, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and the vital role that business can play in achieving change. So, Maya, welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. Uh, we wanted to kick off, if we may, with just a little bit of background on you uh, and your career trajectory to date. Okay, well, thanks very much, Josephine. Thanks for inviting me to do this webinar today. I started off in a very different sort of area of work because I originally began um, my sort of career as a lawyer. So I was in a commercial law firm. Um, in fact, I, at the time, I was very interested already in environmental work. So I did spend about six months as a trainee in an environmental team. But after that, I did quite a lot of other different things, including being a lawyer for the trade unions. But then decided I wanted to go back to environmental work. And I went on to do a master's in law and later joined DEFRA. So I began as a lawyer in um, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, for those who don't know the acronym. And um, I, at that time, worked in the farming and environment side, so very much the rural environmental issues, and then shifted to policy, where I took on a number of different roles, led teams from soils and flood risk issues to um, later working on greening government itself, so government's operations and procurement, and then moved to Hong Kong in around 2015, where I uh, started to work with a business organisation. And in fact, I worked on a number of different areas, including climate and energy and transport, um, and to some extent on circular economy. But I began to get interested in the sort of big challenges at the time in terms of managing um waste and resources and when you live in a place like Hong Kong where it's sort of quite small but you have these huge quite a large sort of I can't remember the, the figures offhand but a large uh, quantity of material that has to be dealt with and quite often ends up being dealt with in quite a wasteful way um, so there, there was a plan to build a, a huge incinerator on a new sort of island. Even the island had to be built for this whole process. 
so I began to get more interested really in the um, the win-wins, the multiple opportunities of more circular economy approach, thinking through how you in effect reduce the footprint of sort of footprints, the ordinary household's business footprint on the environment, um, not only in terms of space, but also on carbon. So before that, I'd always seen waste as something separate from from climate. It was a bit like if you want to worry about climate, just think about energy. You don't really need waste and recycling. That's something totally different. But after some time, I began to realise that we could really benefit by looking at these issues in a joined up way. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I really got into circular economy and then moved into moved to work in DEFRA, leading the waste prevention um, and resource efficiency policy team. It had lots of different names, by the way. So sometimes it was called resource efficiency and circular economy or sometimes waste prevention. And now I work um, at BITC working with businesses in this field. So a very rich and varied background, very impressive. The circular economy strikes me as a massive challenge and opportunity. Uh, Before we get into some of the specifics of that, could you take us back to some of the fundamentals and, and talk us through the fundamental principles of the circular economy for our audience? Okay, well, um, I mean, one of the things about the circular economy, I would say, is that Different people probably have a slightly different understanding of it, so it's not uh, it's not a concept, unfortunately, that is absolutely clear cut. But um, the general principles, I would say, are essentially about using all resources um, in an efficient way. Some some people would include energy as well as material resources, and some essentially talk about materials. I'm just going to include both of these things t- today. So the idea is uh, that you can keep products and materials in use for longer. You can, um, in effect, apply this sort of thinking of there being a sort of hierarchy, keeping things in use at the highest value being preferable. So that's one sort of principle of the circular economy. It isn't necessarily all all about recycling. It's about thinking what's the way in which you are minimising all those carbon emissions from these processes, as well as um, in effect retaining the most value. And you may wonder where that's all getting to, um, but the idea is that you can keep products in use through repair, just through reselling things, through um, remanufacture. So remanufacture is becoming a much bigger sort of aspect of the whole sort of um, circular economy um, set of activities. Um, So, yes. So in terms of the principles, I would say it is about thinking about the use of uh, materials, including things like fuel, in an efficient way, keeping them in use at highest value with the aim of really of achieving a number of different benefits from carbon reduction to reducing the impacts on nature um, and resource security is beginning to feature much more strongly in um, thinking on circular economy as well. So it sounds like the concept has evolved quite dramatically over uh, the time that you've been working uh, on it as a principle. I mean, how well understood do you think it is, you know, within the business community, across government, in the evolution of policy? How how well understood a concept is it? Well, I, you, I think you're absolutely right that it has evolved a lot and probably... I mean, from the different workshops that we organise, 
I would say that there's a fairly large number of people, probably about 50% of the businesses that we talk to, that really do see circular economy in the way that I'm just talking about. So they do see it as part of their net zero mission. And another half who will put things in boxes and go, this is what we're trying to do in net zero, and this is what we're trying to do in waste. So it's still a bit of a challenge in getting people to see circular economy as an approach that has a whole set of different benefits. You've spoken about how, you know, it can reduce waste and how circular economy can make us use our resources more efficiently. Obviously, this is a great way to save costs, but I wonder what kind of wealth or growth can the circular economy generate? Some predictions have it at value the uh, circular economy of generating 8.1 trillion euros a year. Where does this come from and how does it create value in, in that way? Yeah, there are a lot of different reports that um, show the benefits, uh, show these sort of economic sort of gains through circular economy. I, I'd say that if you look at those different um, R's I was talking about, if you think about just simple resale of products, and then you look at repair, remanufacture, um, and then industrial symbiosis type solutions and recycling, you can see the breadth of the thinking in circular economy and why there are so many different opportunities. And I didn't even mention the whole sort of bioresources side of things. If you look at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation diagram, which I'd recommend everybody does have a look at, you'll see that there are the two different wings of the butterfly. And one is all about the um, the minerals and metals type materials and fossil-based materials like plastics, and the other is all bio-wastes. So there, there are a lot of different um, materials and a number of different ways in which you can I suppose, leverage circular economy thinking. So even if you think about just resale, companies like eBay and Gumtree and um, you know a whole load of others like Depop are simply in the business of reselling products. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see how fast those those uh, companies have grown, I mean, there has been you know, a huge increase. I know they also start selling new things, but there's still a vast amount of um, resale that's going on then um keeping up at the top of the hierarchy there is a remanufacture so remanufacture is an area of which um there's still a lot a lot of opportunity and not as many companies in that space so there is a sort of European remanufacture um association that's um working on communicating benefits in my role in defra I used to talk to the Society of Motor Manufacturers, SMMT, um, and they had a separate, uh, uh, I think they called it, uh, perhaps it was called the Remanufacturing Working Group. And that was mainly about components of vehicles and looking at how you can, in effect, take all these different components of the vehicle and put, you know, upcycle them in effect or not in in just recondition them it's as simple as recondition them and retain um a lot of value so you could sell them at a high at at a a good price so hopefully that gives you a sense of all the different opportunities and why they may amount to trillions you know such huge amounts and it strikes me that 
to effectively embed circular economy principles into an organization, you have to fundamentally shift its business model. Because if I really think through what you're saying, we're shifting the idea that you fully own something. In many respects, you borrow an asset or you borrow something that you acquire because you know, you're you're circulating it back into the economy ultimately. It may leave your hands and move into somebody else's hands, but the idea that you never really dispose of something because it's it has a reuse value. You know, you could you could take um critical minerals as a as a good example of that. We know the demand for critical minerals over time, particularly as we electrify, will exceed the supply. So recycling critical minerals will be a really critical part of our economy as we move forward to 2030 and 2050. So extracting things like lithium and cobalt and nickel, et cetera, from items that have been disposed of will be critical to the production and electrification of things in the future. So this sort of concept that you might only ever lease an asset or, or hold it for a period of time is a very different business model ultimately to to what we have today. It does that resonate with where we're moving within the embedment of circular economy principles? Should we start to think like like that that we we lease assets within a business as opposed to own assets and then dispose of? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I'd say um, leasing that shift from owning to leasing or uh, retaining product companies that um, sell products actually retaining ownership um, is definitely a key part of uh, a new sort of circular economy type system. And we're beginning to see some of that. So there are some companies, of course, that are beginning to lease things um some companies have i suppose for quite some time done a fair amount of leasing so if you were to look at something like farm equipment people don't go out and buy the equipment that they need for a few days they would lease um the equipment you made me think about how far the big companies that are say in the pro- in the business of selling people cars how far have they grasped these new business models and shifted and that's where it's not so clear that big companies are immediately sort of jumping at those opportunities. Um, and it is in part. Um, so in discussions, what does come out is the extent of the transformation, uh, so a certain amount of risk aversion, a bit of a concern that consumers may not like it, that consumers actually prefer to own products rather than to you know, retain, own, leave the owner to retain ownership. But on the other hand, we see quite a bit of a shift in the direction where people are happy not to physically own things, at least, so especially if you look at something like um, the entertainment sector, where people would have bought things like music, videos, whatever, and now very happily don't. Whether the changes occur with existing large companies actually changing their business models, so whether you get new disruptors coming into the market, I'd say to a large extent we've had are the disruptors coming into the market. Um, So the big companies do really have to reflect on that and work out how to make this um, transformation. And that's one of the things we do end up talking about in um, our business and communities, workshops and forums. How do you get to the stage where um, 
you know, a leader is brave enough to make a radical transformation, how do you actually engineer that sort of change within an organisation? Because even if you're the CEO, it's not very easy to just sort of cut across a whole lot of existing teams that may think they're doing quite well at the moment. So I think what you were talking about, about the whole sort of leasing um, product ownership model is very much part of the change. It's quite challenging, but there are also other aspects of circular economy which are which are most probably simpler so for example if you were selling building materials you can sell some building materials which are just recycled building materials so there's some aspects of the circular economy which are profitable which do don't involve such radical change so i don't always want to suggest that everything involves complete business model transformation yeah i i think it's really interesting you mentioned Depop and obviously the thriving secondhand market earlier. I wonder whether this shift in mentality, even if it's not particularly drastic, whether a small shift is happening and translates within individuals as well. So I'm thinking of the resurgence of car boot sales, for example. It's interesting to see how, in my experience, they uh, they seem to be thriving even more than they were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. What do you think needs to happen to embed circular economy into individuals' way ways of life and and thinking? Quite often, um, I I hear say when we talk about policy, um, people saying the government needs to know needs to do more to try and change people's way of thinking. Um, but my feeling is that sort of change sort of happens um we don't always realize it's happening quite as fast as as it is um and sometimes there's almost there's a generational gap so the people making policy don't quite realize that all these young people are out there buying things from depop um, maybe their children tell them but otherwise they may not even realize um so my i i'd say that shift is happening but there will, will be um, a lot of people who probably for a long time will really just value things that are new and shiny and glossy. So it's not necessarily as much of a market at, at the moment as one would like. But I haven't actually looked very carefully at how these changes have happened in the, dist- in, in the past. But changes can often happen much faster than one realises. An example that's often given is about using carriages in the early 20th century so cars that came to market and then they didn't grow hugely in the first two three or four five years and all of a sudden you got to a shift where that was it that's what everybody was buying and similarly once the sort of the stigma the of buying second hand goes um when people can see the creative potential of thinking through your own style and design I can imagine that will change in terms of clothing I mean in terms of things like vehicles for example the shift will probably come it'll probably get driven by the vehicle companies so when they realize that actually certain sorts of materials um Josephine you talked about the critical raw materials and the cost of them then uh, thinking through how you upgrade vehicles, how you remanufacture those components is going to become good business and it won't be driven by the consumer. The consumer will just go with it. Whether we'll have a lot more retrofitted cars where you just take an old car and recondition it. I was talking to somebody in India actually who started to look at just remanufacturing a car. Can you take your 
old fossil fuel based petrol car and turn it into an EV. So that sort of thing um, may begin to happen. And there may be a some uh, pushback from consumers who prefer a new design, a new model. So I expect to see quite a radical shift in the next few years, but potentially in some areas, there'll still be people thinking they want the the brand new stuff. I mean, it strikes me as an area that's ripe for uh, behavioural scientists to really think through how they help with change in this area we had interviewed on one of these podcasts uh, Mindy Hernandez at the World Resources Institute who's a behavioral scientist um, who was very focused on the intersection of behavioral science with sustainability and how the language of change um, is used both in policy and in education to nudge people and particularly individuals into different behaviors and given what you've said about that shift from being attracted to the shiny new thing as opposed to being a temporary owner, it does strike me as an area that's ripe for behavioural science uh, focus to, to help us all make that shift. Um, that's just an observation, not a not a question. Um, <laughs> but the the my I wanted to ask about whether you think the circular economy is given sufficient weight within our thinking around the transition you know we talk about the energy transition and we talk about transition very much focused on the decarbonization of things but in the development of policy in organizational understanding of how they develop their strategies how do we help both governments and business really place sufficient weight on the need from a circular economy uh, as we move forward there are two different questions. Oh, let me look at the government one and then the business one. So in terms of government, I don't think the government has acted very quickly in this area. And that is in part because of that sort of almost dichotomy that we talked about, that sort of like one, one thing is waste and one thing is about energy. Um, and that was reflected in a split of government, government departmental responsibility. So Bay's responsible for energy transition and DEFRA are responsible for waste and circular economy. Um, but now that is beginning to shift and Bayes is taking much more. It's no longer Bayes, of course, but um, Department of um, Net Zero and Energy Security Net Zero beginning to take more interest in that. The first net zero strategy, the one that was published and then withdrawn, replaced that one in particular, had quite a a lot of material on resource efficiency. In fact, the new one seemed to have less on resource efficiency and circular economy than the original net zero strategy. But it's definitely there on the agenda for Bayes, thinking about how they get to net zero, because getting to net zero is quite different from a 80% reduction or a 70% reduction. You really do have to start thinking about all those emissions. Um, One of the problems in terms of government taking action is that a lot of those emissions that relate to a product, the embodied emissions, actually rise outside the UK. So they wouldn't be territorial emissions. And governments are responsible for territorial emissions. But then coming to businesses, BITC, we did um, a study to figure out how many of our businesses had committed to net zero and is around 70% mark. So there are a lot of big big businesses have, have committed to net zero. And that net zero is net zero through their 
all their scope one, two and three emissions, which includes those emissions um, outside the UK. So to my mind, um, businesses very much have to get on top of this whole issue about how they reduce those embodied emissions. And whether you want to try and um, work on decarbonising the, the grid in China, or whether you want to think, can we consume in a different way and use products in a different way? In fact, I'd say it's potentially easier to start thinking that through the former than to think about decarbonising um, production in a whole lot of different countries around the world. So I'd say businesses have got every driver to, to do that. They've got lots of drivers to do that. TCFD thinking is also encouraging them to take that action. And now the task force on financial related nature disclosures is also beginning to um, get people to think about all those impacts in their supply chain, getting to grips with it and figuring out how to make that organisational change that I mentioned earlier isn't the easiest thing. And that's where we're doing a bit of work. We're doing some work on that in BITC at the moment. A lot of the apprehension about circular economy is the idea that we just had to consume less. What would you say to people who have that that concern? That question comes up quite quite often, and I often get told by people that we just need to consume less, and you know that's the end of it. Um, what I like about circular economy thinking is um, that it is really about structuring our economy and consuming in a way that sort of reduces the pressure on the natural environment, um, the donuts economics model of Kate Rayworth and others uh, is a really good way of thinking about this. And it shows that what we need to do is think about all these different planetary boundaries that we could be crossing and consume in a different way. It also talks about pushing outwards in terms of our social well-being. So we are sort of inc- increasing and improving on that. And um, the good thing about the circular economy is it still has a lot of space for increasing um, gainful, even good employment. Um, so whether it's in things like remanufacture that could be pretty creative or um, upcycling or reusing industrial wastes, there's a lot of potential there that is really important in terms of social well-being and growth. So my answer is, we don't we don't simply have to consume less we can consume in a different way can you give some examples of where you've seen this come to life in a really effective way um yeah well we work with a number of different companies we've got these companies on our task force so i'm going to mention a few of them and um so for example there's a company called crown workspace uh, crown worldwide um, and that is a company that supplies office furniture. And I would say really in part due to a particular individual thinking, actually, why are we just um, in effect disposing of so much stuff that could have a second life? Um, that bit was turned into a, a, a whole business. So getting a hold of the furniture that was going to be disposed um, and then reconditioning it, refurbishing it selling something which was you know just as good if not better than what um was there originally so that that's one model um uh, we were talking to an architecture firm um and they've given us a case study about a hotel that they um worked on 
where they've used, you've probably seen it before, but um, the um, containers, the metal containers from ships, shipping, and um, those have been used to construct a building. So steel is very highly carbon intensive, but you can be creative and use products of this nature. I mean, another totally different example is water company using waste heat. Um, so the waste heat is used for a brewery. And a final one, I'm going to stop because otherwise I could go on forever. A final one was a, a brewery that um, uses waste outputs um, to make chemicals. So they can make things like acetone out of um, out of these sort of bio um, wastes from their refinery. So that just shows how you, you can be completely transformative. Like the furniture one was a very different business model. The last one I was talking about is quite different because you actually now not just a whiskey refinery, you're actually producing chemicals. It does take visionary people. I did actually ask the person who was responsible for that, how they ended up doing, how they ended up getting into that sort of side of things. And he said that um, the funding from Innovate, so working with universities and um, possibly Innovate UK as well, did help them get off the ground. There are these research bodies as well that are developing new sort of ideas and ways of using materials. I mean, there's there's a huge amount of, like you say, visionary thinking, innovation, but also looking to what is a natural adjacency to your current business. But clearly it can add value it's not just something that you should do because it's the right thing to do there's a real value proposition that sits behind this but then attracting the right funding in order to get this off the ground that's good to hear that there's access to government-backed funding how are we seeing private sector funding engage with the theme of the circular economy as well well, yes, I was talking about that Innovate UK funding. So there is some funding coming through in that way. And those funds tend to be um, match funding type um, schemes. There, there was a, a funding competition that just closed on Friday. So I'm yet to see, I'd like to see um, what the outcome is and whether many companies actually did put some money, were willing to sort of in effect match fund and um, in effect share those costs. But I'm afraid I don't actually have that data to, to know how much money is really going into the R&D on um, circular economy thinking. And one of the challenges that we sometimes have is getting um, data on this uh, on this area um, because it doesn't fall very clearly into something like into, say, Office for National Statistics um, categorization. So you can't sort of just look up sector economy sector and figure out what's happening in that sector and some people wouldn't even um report it as that so in fact i was talking to one of the banks and saying well when you lend money uh, can you tell me how much money you are lending to circular economy businesses they weren't able to do that because they don't lock them all in that way would you like to see mandatory disclosure of circular economy initiatives within current disclosure frameworks then I mean not just for the sake of it but if it's going to help accelerate the um, activity in this area and attract funding because of the value proposition is that something that should be incorporated? 
I think it would be very helpful if we did have at least um, all the lenders uh, disclosing how much they're lending to all these different sort of categories of circular economy um, activity. What we started off talking about the definitions and sometimes definitions not being as clear as that, but it's not terribly difficult to put forward and agree a reasonably good um, definition. And as soon as that's done, or even, you know, it's, it doesn't have to await that, um, banks and other investors could be disclosing what they're investing in. My feeling is that helps build momentum. We developed this circular economy route map for businesses. And in that, we've put in a definition and categorised um, things into four, dif- four different categories. So it's circular design and production, um, circular use, extending lifetime, circular value recovery, which is more recovering the materials and circular support. So it's all the digital tools as well as consultancy tools. So there's there's quite a range, but it would be useful to see um, how much money is being lent to all of the, these different areas. Um, maybe that could help us understand um, which are the most viable, the easiest to get off the ground, which are more complex. It may help um, with ensuring government policy backs all the you know the, the more problematic and more complex areas as well. It's really interesting you talk about data and transparency. I was at the Innovation Zero conference last week, and there was a whole forum on decarbonising and retrofitting the built environment. And that was something that each of the panelists picked out, that if there was better sharing of data, then we'd know which methods, which materials worked um, and which to avoid. So that's obviously something that translates into this as well. But, but also at the conference, there was a consensus that you mentioned earlier, the updated net zero strategy is sadly a little bit less focused on the circular economy. There seemed to be the view that a clear, coherent government strategy for retrofitting and energy efficiency and decarbonising the built environment is lacking. Um, do you think this would contribute to the progress in in this field? And how important is it to have a policy-led movement or can, can the transition occur from the bottom up instead? Yeah, uh, d- important question here and um working with businesses i do i do see that there's quite a lot in people's power and businesses can collaborate and link up and um try and resolve some of the challenges that they may have say for example in um construction and built environment you may find that for example testing and quality control is an issue people not knowing whether certain products are you know of the right standard and right quality but those are sort of areas where businesses may be able to get into the market but there are areas where government policy where it is important that government really looks at um, their policy using taxation and um, financial incentives like extended producer responsibility really important and although we do have the emissions trading scheme we have the aggregates levy some of the different materials we have most probably are still at a lower price and they should be taking into account these externalities and we do need to see if we can um, affect uh, change the price in order to really drive forward to circular economy but as I said in some areas 
business collaboration to identify the barriers and then address the barriers may well be good enough. I'd also like to stress the importance of a local and regional government because local and regional government can help find these um, these gaps, uh, these um, barriers in their own area and look to, to resolve them. So we, sometimes we just hear about things like storage, not enough sites for storing construction materials. Um, now, local authorities could start planning in that space. It may be very difficult if you're in London where the prices are very high, but in some places you may well be able to do that. They may also be able to um, skill up workforces. Another, another challenge has been the UK is not the biggest manufacturing hub anymore and having people with the right skills to remanufacture remains um, a challenge. Well, Katie, I'm going to hand over to you for our final question, if I may. Yeah, of course. Um, but this is quite a big question, another one, and it's about recycling. How useful is it? Because many seem to be of the opinion now that it's not in reality an effective system, but I don't know whether this is because of the inadequacy of the existing processes or perhaps lack of information. So do you think there's a, a role for a well-functioning recycling system to play in the, in the circular economy? and? perhaps how effective mandatory labelling could be in this system? Um, yes, this is very timely. A lot of reforms are underway um, in terms of increasing the amount of recycling of things like plastics in particular. Um, now, some of the scepticism, I think, comes from the fact that uh, to recycle bottles, etc., you do need to use energy that still requires a certain amount of energy, but it is less than if you were to produce the bottles from scratch. Um, the, the challenge is whether we can really introduce the reuse schemes. So in the distant past, uh, we did have a lot of reuse schemes. So a lot of, um, like I said, breweries, etc., would give, send you, would, would um, have systems for collecting the bottles. If you have at the production facilities quite a long way from people's from where the pop centers population are then you end up with a lot of transport related emissions um so uh, the people who do sell things in plastic bottles are going to say well that's just going to be a uh well you you may save the emissions from making plastic bottles but you're just going to increase emissions from transport um my view is that um, there is space for more reuse and repair and remanufacture but there is definitely recycling is also an important part of the mix and not everything's going to be reused repaired remanufactured and it's not going to be forever after some time, it will need to be recycled. And um, the key is to ensure that we do recycle that so that you get high quality um, secondary materials at the end of it. You don't want to have a lot of contaminated materials that sort of slowly or even quickly lose a lot of value. So I, I'm not I'm not in the camp that says recycling isn't worth it at all, but I would I am supportive of more reuse, repair, remanufacturing. I see a lot of potential there. Look, Maya, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolutely fascinating uh, conversation. There's so much to it, but I think you've take us, taken us on a, an invaluable journey uh, of, of educating us on the fundamentals of the circular economy. So thank you so much today for your time. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for your really interesting, pertinent questions as well. Good to talk to you both. Thank you.